feel comfortable because we, we do this. Others of us come in this morning, Father, we're conscious of our own needs, our own challenges, our own weaknesses, our distance from God. Some of us feel uncomfortable here today, Father. Lord, I pray for every person in this room this morning, no matter whether they feel super comfortable, whether they're afraid the roof's going to fall on their head because they're not a good church person. Lord, I pray this morning that you would be amongst us by the power of your spirit, that not one person would leave from this place this morning without saying, God spoke to me today. I encountered his presence. I knew he was near. I heard his voice. Father, as we come around your word this morning, we ask, would you shape us? Would you teach us? Would you train us? And let the power and reality of Jesus move forward in our lives today. Let your rule and your reign move forward in our lives today, God. Lord, I pray for every person this morning as we come that you would speak to us and shape us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Come on, why don't you uh, thank our creative team family as you take your seats. Thanks, gang. Great job. How you doing? Doing okay? It's going to give you a minute to laugh at my face. If you're new or visiting with us, this is the first time this bunch of people has ever seen me without a Ned Kelly beard. And so if everybody's looking, going, look at Pastor Ben's twin young brother. Uh, Danielle Teefy's pretty happy. She likes, she likes the beardless look. Uh, she's walking around telling me I look like a 12-year-old and wondering if she should have an ochre card now. But, um, yeah, she, she doesn't need one. So just get it out of your system. This is how it is today. All right, we're going to move on. <laughs> Who's enjoying our series on prayer? Just two of us, that's good, all right. Keep going, Pastor Ben, feel encouraged, awesome. Uh, If you've missed it, you can download our catch-up sessions off our website. Uh, We are in the middle of a series on the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us, repeat after me, and he taught us how to pray. Before he taught us how to pray, he taught us how not to pray. And uh, he taught the disciples, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 6 from uh, sort of mm, verse 9 onwards at the Lord's Prayer. But you'll notice Matthew chapter 6, and we notice this together, comes in the middle of a bunch of red texts called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching how to live the kingdom life. How do I live the kingdom life? If, If God's kingdom is here and his kingdom has come, how do I enter into it? And how then do I live? And of course, at the middle of this teaching on the kingdom life is Jesus teaching on kingdom prayer. In the middle of all the red bits is Jesus saying, this is how you don't pray, this is how you do pray. It's at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like for Jesus, prayer is at the center of the kingdom life. It's not an optional extra. It's not a religious ritual. It's not something we do out of obligation. It's not something I should feel guilty about. Actually, prayer is to the Christian like the snorkel is to the ocean freediver, who, while they immerse themselves below the water, must connect to the world outside that and breathe deeply from the world they're designed for. Otherwise, what they're immersed in will drown them. And prayer is the deep soul breath of the Christian. Jesus taught them first how not to pray. Then he taught them to pray. We noticed a couple of things throughout our series. The first one is the first thing that Jesus said it's not, is he said it's not for appearances. He said, don't pray like the hypocrites do, like those who wear masks, like those who are acting on the stage. It's not performance, not just so you look religious, not just so you look spiritual, and not even so you look good to God. Don't pray like that. The other thing he said is he said it's not about the words. It's not about the formula. It's not magic and it's not superstitious. You can't talk God into stuff. He said, don't babble like the pagans. They think because of their many words that they will be heard. 
It's not about rote. It's not about being a trained parrot that says the right words and then hopefully God will do the right things. That's called magic. A prayer is not a wizard or a magician seeking to manipulate some type of power to get what they want. It's not about appearance. It's not about formula. It's not about words or superstition or magic. This is the third thing Jesus said it's not about. He said, it's not even about your shopping list of needs. He said, your father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask him. Isn't that an amazing thought that, that, that as we stand and sit here together this morning, God knows everything about you. He knows what you need. He knows who you are. He knows every challenge. He knows every weakness. You don't have to come and tell him. He knows. You don't have to come and pretend. He knows. He knows all of your strengths, everything that's going well. He's present and active in all of your trouble, all of your tribulation, all of your temptation. And Jesus said, it's, it's not about a shopping list because even before you say one need, God already knows about it. He said to them in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 9, this then is how you pray. And we noted that prayer, the definition of prayer that comes to us from the scriptures, this Greek word prosukumai means this, to mutter, to mumble, to meditate, to wish, to long for, to circulate, to ruminate. Mental preoccupation in God's direction. That's what the word prosukumai means. Shukumai means mental preoccupation. Prosukumai means when it's done in the direction. In the Greek language, the word pros always means toward. Prosukumai, mental preoccupation in God's direction. That's what he said. When you pray, do it in God's direction. See, you, you and I, we already have preoccupations, don't we? We stress and we wish and we long and we think and we churn and we burn and we circulate and we ruminate. And there's all sorts of thoughts going around and around in our heads and our hearts and our souls. Isn't that true? So you're, you're actually a professional prayer. You already pray. But do you do it in God's direction? Do you do that toward your Father in heaven? Or do you just sit and ruminate in your own anxious, stressful, worried or selfish world? Do it in God's direction. And how do we do this? How do we do it in God's direction? Jesus gives us some bullet points. The first one, come as a child of your Father in heaven. Our Father. The entry point of the Christian life is not a fearful follower of an angry deity, but a child to a loving, gracious parent. We noted together the tradition, the Christian prayer tradition that Jesus started and Paul continues of calling God Abba Father, that word Abba, Daddy, Papa, a term of intimacy and closeness. Could be the President of the United States to everybody else, but to his kids, he's Daddy. And when we pray, we come as a child running to our Daddy. That's the Christian point of embarkation in prayer, coming relationally, not religiously. The next thing we noted is that when we come and we pray our Father, that we are taking our place amongst God's people. God said this to Moses in the Exodus, go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Israel is my son. Let my son go that they may worship me. And when we pray our Father in heaven, we are taking our place as sons and daughters of God. We are taking it. We are saying, now I'm part of the tribe. I'm part of the new Exodus that not Moses, but now Jesus is leading from the Egypt of sin and death and darkness into the promised land, not the promised land on a map, but the promised land of eternal life, of living heavenly reality in relationship with the supernatural presence of the living God at my side. An exodus for, yeah, that's a bit more exciting than what, you know, like, whoop-de-doo, Pastor Ben. I'm no longer living an alone, secular, dark, broken life. I'm not 
accidental space dust orbiting the sun, but I am a child of the one who made it all. And Jesus says, come pray with me, our Father in heaven. You would expect Jesus to pray, my Father in heaven. But he says, no, my Father is your Father. My God is your God. And I get to join in the slipstream of the sacrifice of Jesus and his daddy is now my daddy. Can I tell you something? I don't deserve him as my daddy. Do you? My, my past is, in, is embarrassing and broken and shameful, full of addiction, full of brokenness, full of drugs and booze and all sorts of terrible stuff and dysfunction. Dark place, a, a, an away from God place. But I get and you get, we get to come to Jesus and we get to enjoy the invitation where he says, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. How many people are just grateful to God that you can live an our Father life, not a his Father life, looking at Jesus, it's all good for you, Jesus, God is your Father, not looking at Pastor Jamie, it's all good for you, Pastor Jamie, when you've still got your beard on and all looking all attractive and everything like that, and then here's all me looking like I'm a 12-year-old boy and everyone's now thinking like, who's the young kid on stage? Your father, his father, our father, our father. So wonderful what Jesus does where he takes away every barrier. He takes away all hierarchy. He takes away all hierarchical nature. Could I, could I perform more for God? Could I change myself? Could I do something to make God love me more? And Jesus says, no, you get to be adopted by a loving God. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. And because of what he's done now, he can send his spirit who can do something in your life. That's what we get to be our father people. Come on. How many people are excited about being part of the new exodus that I get to lead? the old land under the pharaoh of slavery and enter the new land the new land it's better than the old land sorry to the vegans and the paleo people it's a land flowing with milk and honey it's a non-vegan land i'm just kidding if you're a vegan it's okay it's okay yeah when it made me lose my place we notice that we come with a new posture in prayer. Our Father. That's the starting point. There's a doorway. There's an archway to the Christian prayer life that starts by someone who says, I am adopted by my daddy. Notice you haven't asked of anything yet. You haven't made a request. You haven't prayed spiritual warfare. You haven't asked God to meet your needs. All you've done is stopped and percolated and ruminated in who you are because of who he is for the first time ever. This is not about your duty. This is not about your needs. It's not about my needs. It's not you interceding for me or interceding for the nations. That might follow, but at its heart, the stepping stone, the beginning point, the touch point for prayer is not about you doing something, but about you being something. You do things your whole life. Your identity is wrapped up in it, isn't it? But Jesus says, hey, you're not a human doing. You're a human being. And so let me get into your being and create in that a child of God. Our Father, he says. Then he says this, our Father in heaven. And we noted together last week, you can download it off the website, that, that this idea of praying to our Father in heaven is not an acknowledgement that God is far away. It's not an acknowledgement that God is somehow off in the universe. It's not an acknowledgement of the distance of God. It's an acknowledgement of the nearness of God. And we noted together that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in this place where heaven and earth overlapped and interlocked heavenly reality and earthly reality. One plane of existence, Adam and Eve unveiled access to God, unashamed open-faced walking with God in the garden as a custom. He would always do it, Genesis says. 
But then when they sinned, when the fall came, Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They were cast out of this place where heavenly reality and earthly reality were superimposed upon each other. And now they live only a natural earthly reality, but with a deep hunger for a heavenly reality. And the rest of the Old Testament is the quest of people, God's people, God himself, to bring people back into heavenly reality, not send them off to heaven when they die, but to bring heaven to earth. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going through the promised land, they build altars, they have encounters with God, and they say things like this, surely this place is a gateway to heaven because I experience God and heaven is God's space. Heaven is wherever God is. So when God is here, heaven is here. They built altars. Moses went up to the Mount Sinai. No one could go up to the mountain. They weren't allowed to touch it. But Moses didn't. He went up there and the finger of God, heaven and earth, overlapped and interlocked in one place, in one time. The glory of God came and Moses came back down the mountain with the Torah, with the law written by the finger of God itself. And his face glowed and his face was shiny. There was thunder and lightning and then all sorts of stuff. And the people of Israel were scared. They said, Moses, cover your face up. We can't hack it. Heaven and earth overlapped and interlocked. And then God said to Moses, build me a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a tent. Build me a tent. And I'll live in that tent amongst the people of Israel. He was given a special recipe. And the recipe was to make the holy place, the tabernacle, the tent, an exact replica of the Garden of Eden. If you've ever read the recipe, that's why there's plants and all sorts of weird stuff there. Because it's a a recreation of the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were cast out from. They were cast out to the east. The entrance of the tabernacle always faces the east so that God's people can come back into a heavenly existence with their worship and this tabernacle followed the people of Israel all around this one place now the portable tabernacle the overlock overlock again of heaven and earth overlapping interlocking joined together now humans can access God's heavenly presence once more and David and Solomon said this is awesome we don't want to tent we want to build a permanent palace where this happens and they built a permanent palace and God moved in and even the priests that stood there when heaven and earth invaded each other that day when they dedicated the temple the priests couldn't even stand up because it was just too wonderful for God's heavenly reality to come to planet earth sounds good okay well where do we get this temple I want to get back into this heavenly existence stuff and then Jesus comes along and in John chapter 1 he says the word was with God he was God it was God and when we looked at him we saw the glory of God the glory of God we saw that thing that David saw in the temple that Moses saw on the mountain that was in the tabernacle of the feasts of Israel we saw the glory of God and it dwelt among us his name was Jesus Not smoke, not fire, not lightning, not brimstone, walking, talking, living, loving, touching, breathing, Jesus. And John chapter 1 verse 14 said, The Word became flesh and He dwelt amongst us and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we don't need a temple because we have Jesus. Jesus is the temple. That's why in John, the religious leaders attacked Him because He attacked the temple. He said, knock this whole thing down, it's all going to be destroyed. And they said, you can't say that, that's blasphemy. He said, you knock this temple down and I will raise the temple up after three days. And John says, they didn't know he was talking about his own body. Jesus came as a one man mission saying, temples and tabernacles are now obsolete because in Christ, in me, he says, heaven and earth are finally joined together again. And any person who says yes to the gospel, yes to my offer, yes to becoming a follower of mine, they can enter heavenly space again where heavenly reality and earthly reality meet, not in a temple, but in a human life, in Jesus Christ himself. We can live 
the heavenly existence. We celebrated, Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 3, Praise God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. You have every heavenly blessing now in your life in Christ Jesus. You live in two places at once. You live on earth, but you live a heavenly life. Heaven's not you're going there when you die. Heaven is a place that God wants to bring to earth. That's why Jesus later, even in the very prayer we're studying, he will teach us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let heavenly reality invade planet earth. And who is it? We are the forerunners. We are the wayfarers. We are the ones where the whole world lives without God. We, in our own lives, we pray, my Father in heaven, acknowledging that heaven is now right here where God is. Jesus said it himself, when two or three of you gather in my name, there I am right now in your midst, the presence of God, heavenly reality right here, right now. He he said, when two or three of you gather, I'm there. When you give a cup of cold water in my name, you're doing it to me. When you pray, when you worship. See, all Christian practices have at their heart this number one thing we do it because that's how we take heavenly reality and bring it into earthly reality and then we're changed in that process into not just earthly beings but heavenly earthly beings some of us are waiting for a visitation of god but you know god's waiting for a visitation of you when was the last time you went to heaven not talking about a strange vision although that happens not talking about going up a mountain, although that happens. I'm talking about living the Our Father in Heaven life. Now, where, where you are, you don't need a building, you don't need a temple, you don't need rules, you don't need a formula. You need an open heart that says, I'm an adopted child of the living God, my Father in Heaven. That's how you start a prayer life. That's how you start to pray, by being aware of your identity by coming into heavenly reality, by tuning out this world, not because we're, we're Pharisees, we don't want anything to do with it, but because really we're not tuning out the world, we're tuning in to heaven. When we worship, when we pray, when we come together, when we read God's word, we, we, we take our earthly life and we say, Lord, let heavenly reality superimpose over my life. And then the quality of life I live changes because it is supercharged by heaven. Our Father in heaven, listen to Jesus' next teaching. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. My daughter was young once, India. She's 14 now. When she was about five, she said, when you pray, Dad, you should say, God, hello to your name. (laughs) And uh, that was her way of logging on to the heavenly pipeline. So, you know, you've got to get God's attention. He doesn't have a mobile phone you can ring, so you've just got to call her, hello to your name. She's not incredibly wrong. It's good theology, Indy. Good theology. Hallowed doesn't mean say hello to God's name. Hallowed is an old word. It's an old-fashioned word. Hallowed means to be holy, to be made holy, to be seen to be holy, to make great. Our Father in heaven, we come acknowledge. And here is the point of disembarkation from who you are into what you're doing in prayer. Prayer stepping stone number one is a life of worship to God. Worship is what we do first. It's not what we do last. Worship is what creates a prayer. Worship is how we pray. We begin our prayer with worship. I come not religiously, not formally. I come not ritualistically. I come not guiltily. I come not ashamed. I come and I say, I'm a child of my God. I come in relationship and now I come with worship. God, may your name be great. May your name be holy. May your name be magnified. Truly Christian prayer starts with worship. It doesn't start with your needs. 
This is curious. I, I taught in Bible college for many years, and I don't know, I think if Jesus did a Bible college uh, assignment on prayer, I'm torn because I'd probably fail him. I can't see repentance in here. I can't see you starting with your shopping. Okay, God, well, first of all, I kicked the cat, then I ran over the dog, then I ran over the neighbors. I, I, I don't see that. I see Jesus saying, how you come to me is through the gateway called worship. We start, hallowed be your name. Christian praise and worship, magnifying God's name. My mum, she's, let's call her mature-aged, and uh, she reads her Bible, and they just don't make Bibles with the print large enough for her to be able to see it. She can wear her glasses. She get three of you and put your glasses on top of her glasses. She still can't see that page. So she has a magnifying glass, and she takes that magnifying glass, and she shines it over the page... Actually, it's with any book, but I'm just making it sound spiritual by saying it's the Bible. Could be the bus timetable. She, she, she magnifies it over the page. And where she holds the magnifying glass, the writing gets bigger. Before, she couldn't see it. Now she can see it. Before, it all just blended in and her eyes were hurting. She couldn't make head or tail of it or sense of the page. But when she takes her magnifying glass, what she magnifies, she sees. What she magnifies, she understands. What she magnifies now stands out from all other things in the act of magnifying it. It becomes clear. The psalmist said this, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord. Take your magnifying glass and shine it on the Lord. And suddenly he becomes bigger than everything else you're faced with. Suddenly he becomes into focus far more than anything else that's a blurry jumble of things in your life, doesn't he? Magnify the Lord. Make God bigger in your life. See, you're a worship expert because you worship all the time. And you magnify things all the time. You magnify worries. You magnify temptations. You magnify offenses. You magnify fights. You magnify car problems. You magnify bills. You magnify, um, you know, celebrities. You magnify sporting prowess. You magnify your own stress, your own brokenness, your own sin, your own loneliness, your own selfishness, your own ego your own needs and wants and desires, you, you magnify all sorts of stuff. It's bigger. You focus on it, and in the act of focusing on it, it becomes all you can see. I'm not attacking you or criticizing you, but I'm telling you, this is what a worshiper is, a normal person that magnifies stuff, that says, instead of magnifying stuff, I'm going to magnify the Lord, and I'm going to make him the looming fixture of my life. I'm going to make Jesus bigger than all my other stuff. Jesus is already bigger than all your other stuff. But what happens is to you is not because you're focusing on everything. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. You know what that is? That's code for hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. To hallow means to make holy, to set apart, to set above. Let God's name be made holy. In the Old Testament, the very careful thing that people had to do was be careful not to profane God's name, to disrespect, to blaspheme, to let down God's name. Don't profane God's name. And there's all these laws in the Old Testament how not to profane God's name. And Jesus says in the new covenant, when I've come as the temple that you can come to and live in the overlap of heaven and earth, it's not about what you won't do. The Old Testament can be summed up in these words, thou shalt not. A focus on what not to do. Don't break these laws. The New Testament can be summed up in this one phrase, thou shalt. It's not about what you shouldn't do. It's now about what you can do. 
These guys were so worried. I shouldn't profane the name of God. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and says, you can make holy the name of God. The Christian prayer, the Christian prayer warrior, our point of embarkation is worship of our Father in heaven. It's worship. Do you know if I had to choose a synonym for Christian, I'd say worshipper. Worshipper. Actually, as humans, anthropologists tell us humans by nature... We are worshippers. We are worshippers. Worship in anthropological terms is simply the human's awe-filled response to greatness. That's why when you see a sunset, you go, whoa, it comes out of you. An awe-filled response comes. You don't have to try it. It just happens to you, doesn't it? When you go to a sporting event, let's just imagine there was a, a cricket game on for Yona that um, had the Australians versus the powers of darkness from over the sea. And at this cricket game, let's just say one of the Australians does an amazing sporting feat that has every Aussie in the stadium standing to their feet going, whoa, and the crowd goes, because they're responding to greatness. You know, it's funny because in church you have to tell people to respond to greatness, but if you go to a rock concert or a sporting game, one of the things that everybody do, whether they're Christian or not, is they come, yeah, yeah. And you come into church and the worship leader says, lift your hands to heaven, and you're like. You do it by nature. When you come into church, you're thinking about a lot of stuff because we've got wrong ideas about everything almost, and mainly that's about ourselves. But see, if you're unconscious and you're not self-conscious and you just go to the cricket and they hit a big ball, yeah, you, you, you assume worship posture immediately because humans by nature are worshippers. In our society, we've become very, very secular. So we've removed the worship of God from almost everything, including public institutions, places and traditions. But you know what? Worship is still there and worship is replacing. Do you know what we do now? Our society is so secular, but our worshippers' hearts are so hungry to worship something and notice greatness that we create artificial processes to worship somebody, right? We, 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 we have these gatherings called reality TV where we will notice something good about somebody, put them on a pedestal, and all... We will worship them. They will become a celebrity. We will even call it Australian Idol because our hearts require something to worship. And when you take God out of the equation, all we have left is people or things or ourselves or a combination of the few. We're worshippers. And a lot of our problems come not because we're not worshippers. You are already a worshipper. Our problems come because of what we worship and where we direct our worship to. So Jesus says the starting point of the Christian life is coming as a worshipper. Now, this is about what you do privately, but it's also about what we do corporately, both and the same thing. Do it at home. Do it in your car. Do it in your workplace. Do it walking down the street. Don't get arrested, but do it walking down the street. Some of us, our problem when it comes to being a worshipper is we've got the horse before the cart. We think worship is a super spiritual practice of really good Christians. And if I could ever be good enough or if I could ever be holy enough, if I could behave well enough, if I could fix my life enough, if I could change myself enough, then I'd be really, really super spiritual and a good Christian. And then I could be a worshipper. The author to the Hebrews shows us what a mistake this is in Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, please notice that's not saying he's gone far away from us. 
He has ascended to heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just like we are, meaning he sympathizes with us. He knows our condition. Yet he did not sin. Listen to this, verse 16. Let us then, let us then, everybody say, let us then. Other translations, let us therefore, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See what happens? I need mercy, I need grace before I can come and be a worshiper. No, approach God's throne, approach God's throne, come behind the veil, follow King Jesus into heavenly reality. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because when I'm there, I receive grace and mercy to help me in my time of need. Some of us, we need grace, we need mercy, we have needs, big needs and little ones and inner needs and outer needs. And some of us think, I've got to deal with all those needs before I'm situated to be a worshiper of God. But the author to the Hebrews agrees with Jesus and says, the way you come to God is worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because when I worship, I'm coming into God's throne room itself and I'm receiving the grace and mercy I need. Don't let your needs stop you from being a worshiper. Because being a worshiper is how you get grace and mercy for your very needs. Some of us are waiting for everything to be okay and then, then I can worship God. But, but the New Testament way is, no, it's not change and then come. It's come and be changed. And so Jesus loves and he touches and he heals and he delivers because his grace is transforming and he doesn't say thou shalt not he touches you and changes you and you live going i can do this now and so we worship together in god's throne room it's what we do our father in heaven hallowed be your name notice that for jesus the starting point is worship not your shopping list of needs the starting point is the glory of god not the needs of the prayer not the needs of the world, not the needs of your neighbor, not your shopping list. It's, it's the glory of God, a life. This is what a Christian is, somebody who has encountered Jesus and the inner rudder of their heart changes from seeking their own need and glory to the glory of God, even in the face of their own needs. Jesus got into a conversation with a woman who by every standard of the day was considered to be a, an evil woman, a social outcast, the bottom of the spiritual and social pecking order, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. And Jesus has a worship conversation with her where he says, if you knew who it was to talking to, you'd get into this stuff. He says to her in John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, the time is coming and it has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshippers God wants. Listen, the time is coming when true worshippers will worship God being perfect and holy. No, in spirit and in truth. To be a follower of God is to be changed into a worshipper. First, in spirit. What does that mean, to worship God in spirit? To worship God in spirit means to receive God who is a spirit, to receive that spirit into your life and cause that reception to create a response to God in you. Worshipping in spirit and truth means I relationally connect to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then that connection to God causes me to understand his greatness. The psalmist said of this, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
when you taste and you'll see, you'll understand, you'll respond. That's what a worshipper is. Worshipping in spirit, a heart brought alive and brought into the wonder of God. A heart coming alive to the presence of God. Then a heart responding to God in spirit and in truth. When I wasn't a Christian and when I was kind of newish at it, um, I used to think Christians were super weird for many reasons. One of those reasons is when I would come into church and look at them all singing. And there's all different types of ways people behave during the worship time in church. And I just thought you were all weird. Didn't matter if you were like the contemplatives or the funnel of love people. Pour it in, God. Didn't matter if you were the AFL umpire worshippers. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Didn't matter if you were the rock star worshippers. Yes, God. I, I just thought you were all weird. Some people, when they worship, they do the Y5, logging on to heaven. There's, there's the Baptist model. What are these people doing? There's the Pentecostal thing. And all types of things in between. I'm just telling you, I didn't think one or the other was weird. I thought you were all weird. You were all weird. I thought this is like bad karaoke, man. Bad karaoke. They, they've got the words on the screen. The ball's not even telling me when I should sing in the right bits. And then you've got the people on the stage that look like, you know, they really want to be rock stars, but they were basically hopeless in any other forum. So the church had mercy on them and said, you can sing your songs for us, I guess. You know, bad karaoke. Failed Australian idol people. That's what I thought it was. And... and So maybe when you come together as God's people with us, maybe you have a response to our worship practices as well. Maybe you find that the things that someone does on the platform when they're leading, weird. Maybe you find their motion weird. Maybe you find their lack of motion weird. Maybe you find their emotion strange. Maybe you find their lack of emotion strange. I, I do. I find it very difficult in church as a church pastor when people who know Christ come to a worship time and we're singing, Oh, man, how great your love is. And, and people are doing this. How great your love is. How great your love is. You're the most awesome thing in the whole universe. And I want everybody to come and know you. How great your love is. Come on, wrap it up, buddy. My turkey's going cold at home in the oven. How great your love is. I just find that weird. I just find that if worship is a response to the greatness of God, that I feel personally as a Christian, no matter how I feel emotionally, no matter what's going on with me, no matter what else is happening, that what I do is if I know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, just come and stare for a little bit and eventually you'll kind of work stuff out and you'll probably have an encounter with Jesus. But if you know Jesus, we come and worship Jesus. We come together and we do what the Bible says. It doesn't matter if I'm a contemplative or if I'm a sanguine or if I'm a conservative or if I'm eccentric. It doesn't matter if I'm outgoing or in it. Coming, it doesn't matter if I'm like navel gazing or if if I'm like heaven staring, it doesn't matter. What matters is that I have an invitation to become a worshiper of the King of Kings, the greatest thing that's ever happened to humanity, the one who the Bible struggles to explain. He was the Word, He was in the beginning, everything was made through Him. 
And we all with unveiled faces, Paul said to the Corinthians, we are gazing on him and we are beholding his glory. And as we behold that glory, we ourselves are being changed from glory to glory. Come on. I just don't find it possible to come and stare like a cow at a new gate. (laughs) When faced with the glory of God. It's not a Baptist thing, it's not a Pentecostal thing, it's not a charismatic thing, it's not a Catholic thing, it's not a black thing or a white thing or a caramel thing or, 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 or a red thing for the people that are sunburned at the cricket called the British, Fiona. It's, it's, it's a Bible thing. It's a Bible thing. Psalm 99 verse 5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool for he is holy. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. It doesn't say, hey, come and kill a few minutes on a Sunday morning. Look, we know you're tired. We know you've had a big week. We know you've got to put up with the weird guy with the baby face and the deep voice trying to work out is something wrong with that ill person. We know. So we'll warm you up with a couple of songs just to get you started. We know you're a bit late, so we'll put on some music so you can slip in unnoticed when you, you know, without everybody knowing. We'll, we'll just warm up the crowd with a few songs, and then we'll get to the other bits. It doesn't say that. It says, ascribe to the Lord the splendor to his name. We come together because we are the Exodus people acknowledging our Father in heaven, and we begin by saying, God, hallowed be your name. Let us magnify your name. Let us lift up your name. Let us ascribe to your name the glory that it's due then I don't have words to say. Then I'm jumping out of my skin to be contained. To, to... Psalm 96 verse 4 says, How great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved and he will judge the people with justice. Scripture calls you and I into an individual and a corporate expression that says to a watching world out there, we know you don't think God's real, but we live at the overlap of heaven and earth. And we want to tell you something, the Lord reigns. How many people can say amen? We want our world to see there is a worshiping community in Alice Springs. When everyone else thinks Jesus was dead and buried and God is a myth, there's a worshiping community in Alice Springs. And every Sunday or every Friday or every Wednesday or every Monday, whenever you meet and whatever you do, we do it privately and we do it together. We worship the King of Kings because we're saying to the watching world, I don't buy the lie that he's dead and buried. I believe the Lord reigns. Worship's not Christian karaoke. It's not just the musical bits in church. The musical bits in church are worship. Preaching the gospel is a form of worship. Receiving the gospel is a form of worship. Taking communion, it's a form of worship. We do worship songs, but the worship doesn't stop when the band sits down. And the people on the stage doing the stuff, they're not the worshipers. We're the worshipers. And we train here. We come. We worship together. We encounter God so that we are transformed. But when we leave this place, we carry what we've been transformed without into that world out there. Jesus said, you're the 
light of the earth. You're the salt of the you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your good deeds shine before men so that they may see your Father in heaven and glorify him. Worship is about me training to be someone who can then go out and be salt and light in this world that God might get the glory. That's why we're not a social club. We're not even a social justice club, although I believe in cups of cold water in Jesus' name, visiting the poor, feeding widows and orphans, all that stuff, you name it. We do it and we believe in it, but we don't do it because we're a social club or a social justice club. We do it because we are a worshipping community. That's primarily what we are. That's why we do this. That's why most of you, the most you'll ever have to do with our church might be just attending services on Sundays. And it's okay because it's one of the primary, most important things that separate the people of God from the people of the rest of the world is we stop and we pause and we shine our magnifying glass on the name of Jesus and we worship him and give him glory. It's primarily what we are, and everything else we do comes out of the fund that is charged and nurtured by the fact that we're worshippers. Worship is the energy boost. Worship is the resource fund. Worship is the well digger that gives me something that I can take out to that world. Some of us, come on, we've got to step up our worship life. We've got to step up our worship together. We've got to step up our worship in private, not out of obligation, but because, you know what, you could have so many great breakthroughs, so much glory, so much presence of God, so much reality of His Spirit in your life, but, you know, if you're not a worshiper, then, you know, it's really hard to get to the give us our daily bread bits, to the your kingdom come bits, to the forgive us our sins bits, to the lead us not into temptation, to the deliver us from evil bits of the prayer, if you're not doing the hallowed be thy name because that's where it all starts. It's not karaoke. It's not just for the music teams. It's not just for the spiritual black belts. Not just for those who wish they were on Australian Idol but weren't good enough. Not just for the pastors. Worship in the old English language means this. Worth script is where it comes from. Worth script. To ascribe worth or value to something or someone. It's a posture of vulnerability. Jesus said you'd worship in spirit, but you'd also worship in truth. In truth. That's a posture of vulnerability. It comes from the Old Testament land where you would be surrounded by an army and the army would say, stick them up. You've got to surrender your weapons and you've got to now serve our king. There was a demand for allegiance. Which king will you serve? The king of the army that's been defeated or the king of the army that is victorious? And they would surround you and you would wear your armor and you'd be on the ancient battlefield and they'd have their swords and spears and they'd be around you and you would be given an option. Serve the new king, live in his new kingdom, swear allegiance to his kingdom, or you die, or you're gonna die. That's what they do. And of course, what you would do is you would say, Well, I'll I'll swear allegiance to the new king. And so you would stick him up. Ever wondered why Christians raise their hands in worship? Some of us in this place were comfortable with it. Others we feel like it's super weird and we don't know why people do it, and we certainly don't want to do it ourselves. Christians stick him up in worship, like this or like this or however. Because actually that's a symbolic practice that comes from the ancient battlefields. If, if I'm in the bank this week and someone comes to rob the bank, the first thing they're going to do, stick them up. Why do we stick them up? Why does stick them up is a universal sign of surrender? It's in every culture, it's everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go in the world, threaten someone with a machete or a gun and unless they're going to fight you back, they'll do this. Why? It comes from ancient battlefield practice that when I'm wearing my armour... You can stab me here, here, or here, but I'm, I'm, I've got my armor to protect me. So you can't get to my sensitive bits. You can't get to my vital bits. You can't hurt me. You can't harm me. I'm not vulnerable to you. But when I stick them up, 
My armpits are points of vulnerability. That's the bit in the ancient world where, where, where you would make them stick them up and you would take a sword and a spear and you would point it right up against the armpit. Make one wrong move. <sighs> Skewered. Skewered through the soft parts, through the armor, into the heart, into the lungs. So, so my vital organs are exposed when I, lift, when I stick them up. My private stuff you can't see on the outside but is essential for my life. The access to that is via me sticking them up. That's why stick them up is a sign of surrender. I'm showing my vulnerability. I'm, I, I'm opening up to you the bits where you now have power in my life. I'm, I've surrendered. I've surrendered. I'm holding nothing back. Even my armor does me no good. I'm taking my armor away. That was a battlefield thing. A demand for allegiance. If he's your king, stick him up. The New Testament and the Old Testament, they say, in a world full of kings, there's only one king. In the Old Testament, his name is Yahweh. In the New Testament, his name is Jesus. And humans, in a world of competing kings and in a world of competing demands for your loyalty, for your time, for your attention, for your worship, for your worth script, King Jesus says, stick him up. And you say, God, I come not just in spirit. I've encountered your spirit and it changes me to being someone who responds to you. But now I come as a surrendered person. I come, that's what a worshiper is. I'm a surrendered person. I, I, I'm taking off my armor to you, God. I'm holding nothing back from you, God. I, I'm surrendering my life. to You can do things in my life now, God. You can move. I'm exposing my vital parts to you, God. I'm vulnerable. I'm not sticking back, wearing my armor, protecting myself from you. There are two words in the Bible for worship. One is the word latruo. Latruo comes to us from the book of Hebrews. Actually, it's the word that Jesus says when Jesus says, God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth. That's the word, latruo. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 uses the word latruo. It means to serve, to serve God, to worship, to worship or serve by performing sacred services. Not having church services, performing sacred services. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews is, says. Chapter 12 verse 28, using the word latruo. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Latruo. Let us perform sacred services to our God. Let us do what the psalmist said, come and sing and clap our hands and lift our hands and, and worship God. We no longer bring bulls and goats for sacrifice. We, we bring ourselves. Latruo. That means the intentional and deliberate act of declaring to God and to others the wonder and the goodness of God. That's what worship is. The second word is this, proskuneo. Proskuneo. Proskuneo has that prospit on it, which means towards something. And kuneo means to kiss. It's a battlefield term. For when you stick him up and you surrender to a king, they would bring you before the throne of the king and you would bow at the king's feet. And in a sign of surrender, you would kiss the feet of the king. I've been conquered in battle. I'm holding nothing back. I now bow before your throne. I accept your rule and reign and I'm going to kiss your feet. Isn't it funny? That's a battlefield term. But in the New Testament, the word for worship is proskuneo. 
to come and bow at the feet of King Jesus and kiss his feet. That's what we do when we're worshiping God. That's why we lift our hands. That's why we sing. That's why we close our eyes. And sometimes it look like, man, they're really a bit lost in the moment. We are lost in the moment because we are bringing magnification to his name. We're just kissing on King Jesus' feet for a little bit like the Bible teaches us to do. Paul said to the Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. See, worship is how we do that, first of all. Come like a sacrifice and don't offer a bull or a goat. Offer yourself. Be a high priest in your own life. Offer yourself to King Jesus. Three things happen when we live the hallowed be thy name life. When we are worshippers, three things happen. Here's the first one. We are changed into the image of what we worship. The Old Testament is peppered with this thought. Whatever you worship, you become like. Isaiah said to the Israelites, You Israelites, you worship these idols that are deaf and are dumb. They cannot speak. They cannot hear. They are blind. Their eyes don't work. They are blocks of wood. And now you will become deaf and dumb. They don't think, they don't understand. Now you're going to become unthinking and not even understand. You, you become like what you worship. You, what you worship, you take on the characteristics. You, hey, you do this anyway, you and I. See, if, I, if I'm caught up in celebrity culture and I worship Kim Kardashian, all of a sudden, and obviously I don't do this, all of a sudden my, my life begins to change because... My reality is all about body proportions and body parts and what sticks out and what sticks in and what, 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 like, what I can pump a little when I dance. And, you understand? On our culture, she's a celebrity. She's a modern idol. I'm not having a crack at Sister Kim. But that's what we do. We, our hearts are idol factories. And we're looking for things to worship. But be careful what you worship. You already worship. But you will become like what you worship. The Israelites worshipped these deaf, dumb idols. And then when, with regards to God, they became deaf and dumb, had no idea. Isaiah had to come and go, hello. The Israelites, they went a step further. They began to worship Baal and Asherah. Fertility gods in the ancient world represented by a phallus. If you're young and you don't know what that is, your parents would love to explain that to you at lunchtime fertility gods of sex and grain and war and lust and power and if you worship Baal or Asherah you get better at all those things you get more power you get you, you get more reproductive power more attractiveness more more grain more see see you, you worship them and 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 you seek to be like that and as Israel worshiped Baal and Asherah they became more lustful they became more violent they became more greedy they became more unjust because it was all about them getting what they want they became exactly like what they worshiped Paul says, that's why we worship Jesus, because when we come in worship, we don't come like Moses, who had to cover his face up because everyone was freaked out. We come with unveiled faces, and we behold his glory, and then we'll be changed from glory to glory. We, we, we worship Jesus because I, I need more of the love of God. I need more of the holiness of God. I, I need more of the character of Jesus in my life. I need more of the grace of God, don't you? I need, I need more of the victory of God. I need the presence of God and some challenges I'm facing. Don't you need it? Don't you need Jesus just to come in and walk on the, some of the troubled storms of your life? 
don't you need more of the power of God to face what you're going through? Don't you need more of the wisdom of God to wrestle with what you're wrestling with? Don't you need more of the joy of God because sometimes life just feels full of despair, doesn't it, and hopeless? Come on, some of us are in grief and we need the comfort of God. As I worship, I become like what I worship. So every deficiency in me, every need in me, every fracture in me, everything I'm ashamed of, everything I'm embarrassed about, everything that's broken, don't feel sorry for me. You have all that stuff too. And, and by the way, so does the person on your left. They've got big problems, man. They've got big problems. Um, stand on your feet. Would you stand on your feet? When we come as worshippers, we stop and we say, God, I first of all come as a child, a child who is encountering your spirit and responding to that one I encounter by saying, you are amazing, hallowed be your name. The Bible says, come in spirit, come in truth. Take your mask off. Take your armor off for a second. Like, like, just imagine that it's just you and God right now, and you're here going, not coming as my father, but coming as our father. And, and, and you're in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who made the heavens and the earth, who is unbelievably good and gracious and loving, whose love endures forever. And I wonder today in this place if you just do a little bit more training with me before we leave, a little bit more changing with me before we leave. I'm going to ask the band to lead us in a song. And here's what I want you to do. Maybe you've never done this before. Maybe you've never shut your eyes and just abandoned yourself to the process of worship before. Maybe you're not comfortable lifting your hands. I want you to lift your hands. I don't care if you do it like this. I don't even care if you just do it like this, like undercover brother. It's okay. But I wonder today if you would do something that you've never done before and lose yourself in the presence of God and say, God, I I come to worship you knowing it's the way I come in prayer. It's the way I relate. It's the way I encounter your presence. And it's the way that I am changed. Come on, why don't we worship God together, Ben? so good father you are so good you know i said to our first service remember how hard it was to learn how to drive a car remember how uncoordinated you felt and awkward and foolish and 
I, I was dating Danielle. I didn't have a driver's license or a car. I had a skateboard. But she had a Datsun 120Y, an orange one with a white door that she smashed when she was daydreaming about me one time. She uh, decided, because she was sick of me picking her up on my skateboard, that she would give me a driving lesson. Now, the truth is, at that stage of my life, I'd driven a lot, but I'd always been drunk or high when I drove. And I could do it when I was drunk or high, but when I was sober, I couldn't get nothing to work, man. This is not a life skill you should try to take away from this moment. So she tries to give me a lesson, and uh, she's got this bomby Datsun 120Y, and, and it's a manual vehicle, and we are bunny hopping down the road like we are listening to Metallica. <laughs> just crazy and she's screaming her head off yelling at me you don't think she could be like that but she she's got incredible anger issues and 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 she was just like going crazy and 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 we pulled over to the side of the road and I said Danielle you're never teaching me to drive ever again and I went and got a qualified driving instructor and it's good because the driving instructor already expects you to be bad and they already know you're hopeless and so there's just so much less shame in it but oh it was uncomfortable do you remember when you learned to drive just how unnatural it is to get your arms and legs doing different things and and being aware to not have other collisions with wheelie bins and pedestrians and other traffic and it's a whole new world that you have to learn but what happens is if you do it long enough you stop noticing you're doing it you know who drove here this morning going oh man put your foot on the middle pedal where's the indicator gone now you go places and you you get there and you think I wasn't even, I, I felt like I didn't even realize what I was doing. I often drive home on autopilot, I'll get home and I'll be like, man, I didn't even think about driving the whole way here. And if you followed me in traffic, you have seen that before. Um, but so worship and driving are the two things that are so similar. Because here's the thing, with driving, reading a book about driving doesn't make you a driver. And you can know all the theory and read about all the pedals and all the steps. And, and it's helpful, but it doesn't make you a good driver. Driving makes you a good driver. So, so, so to, to learn to drive, you don't just study the theory, you do the driving. Well, while reading the Bible and studying theology or observing church services, that doesn't make you a worshiper. Worship makes you a worshiper. Worship is the thing in the Christian life that you get better at the more you do it because, you know, it starts off feeling awkward. Oh, I can't believe. What do you want me to lift my hands for? My deodorant might not be as good enough and I don't know. I've got a hole in my blouse. No, it's you just do it and you get better. And you do it solo and you do it with God's people. And you just practice, practice, practice because as you do it, you get a breakthrough. And you, this is what I found. I told you before when I used to come to church, I thought you guys were so weird. And somebody said to me this verse, taste and see that the Lord is good. So Ben, just taste and see. And they taught me how to worship. Now, I don't know about the theology of it because I don't think I said the sinner's prayer, but I began to come in and worship God. I got delivered from my drug addictions and my booze and my depression that had a grip on my life. I couldn't even go till lunchtime without saying, God, if you're real, let me get hit by a bus. I can still remember the very first time in my 20s I made it to lunchtime and thought, wow, I haven't prayed to be dead today. Maybe there's something to this God stuff. And, and as I became a worshiper, I changed. I don't know what you need. I don't know what your cha- challenges are, what you're faced with. But we've done some theory. But I wonder this week if you do some practice. I wonder if next time you come to church, you'll do some practice. I wonder if you'll 
many times throughout the day, just begin to say, hallowed be thy name. You are good, God. Turn to the Psalms. Begin to read them and pray them and soak in them. Just open up your life to being a worshiper of God. Know why it's important? Countless times in this church or the one we were pastoring in Brisbane, I've talked to people who've come in while God's people are worshiping. Before a verse has been read from Scripture, before someone's held a microphone and said anything, before there's been any prayer or any gospel message, I've talked to people that have come in while God's people are worshiping together and they didn't even know what was happening to them, but they had an encounter with God. In our church in Brisbane, there's a famous fashion designer. His first name is Clint. He came in and, and a lot of the younger people who are kind of hip and cool, they were like, oh, can, can you believe who that guy is? There is underwear with that guy's name on it. There is like, you know, like don't picture it, but there was, and there's all, you know, and he was very well known in the fashion industry. I don't know why he did it. He came to our church. He came, he would tell the story like this. 